everybody, and welcome to Saturday Night Live After Party Off Week Sensation, whatever the heck you want to call this. Uh, my name is Mike Bloom, here during an off week after the first three episodes of Season 44 to talk about October 2018 at large, and I guess the state of Season 44 at large. Of course, I am not alone. I am joined by my dynamic partner, Mario Lanza. Mario, how you doing? I am doing so well, and I'm so excited to be the HR Pickens to your Abraham Parnassus. I, I mean, listen, uh, I don't know if I want to go that whole route with putting a siring the grandson. I've just come. My, my bones are a little weak. I don't know if I can go all the way to California from on the East Coast. Thank you. I'm very excited that you've been so busy porno railing your wife. <laughs> yeah, like a, like a sledgehammer to an egg. Uh, so, yeah, with the first three episodes got covered in great length by John and Steve. And we're here to sort of, uh, for those of you that might not have tuned in to our preseason show, uh, Mario and I are different voices. We used to do uh, a Saturday Night Live podcast at Transition into one called SNL Funhouse for the back half of season 43. And uh, we got brought on board to sort of provide two different voices and also some content during these off weeks as, you know, SNL prepares this week and next uh, until into the uh, first week of November where they'll be bringing Jonah Hill back for his fifth time. So we're basically going to talk about like the first three episodes, not go as granular as the other two guys did, but give our sort of basic impressions, highlights, lowlights, uh, big picture things and how we feel like season 44 is starting to shape up. You can never tell an SNL season by its first episode, but I feel like that first stretch of three really uh, indicates how the show's going to do, at least in its first half. It's sort of shaking off the cobwebs and really setting a tone for itself. So that being said, Mario, Overall, after three episodes of season 44, what are you thinking about it so far? See, that's a, an interesting question to bring up because had you asked me that about the first episode, I'd have one opinion. If you'd asked me that after the second episode, I'd have a different opinion. And then after the Seth Meyers one, my opinion flipped 180. So it's an interesting one for me to say overall where I think it is. Although before we do that, Mike, there's one thing I think maybe we want to do. A lot of the audience here for SNL After Party may not know us all that well. I think we should give our backstory on who we are and why our opinions actually should be listened to. Do you think that would be a smart move? Like, are we we're just some jerk-offs that showed up here in the middle of their podcast and think that we're worth a show? Like, let's actually give our backstory. I would assume that being a jerk-off is just any requirement for being a podcaster nowadays. Like, it's jerk-off with a microphone in front of you. Uh, and that could lead to many different things, but podcasting might be one of them. Uh, but sure, we, we, we could give our resumes. So uh, my name is Mike Bloom. I am a uh, New York-based entertainment journalist, podcaster, comedian, triple slash, etc. cetera. Uh, so I've been doing podcasts about reality and scripted television for the past four or five years. And I've uh, also been doing writing for The Hollywood Reporter and Parade in the entertainment field. In terms of my basic SNL Lineage. I have been watching ever since the late 90s, uh, but I really start remembering it in uh, around the mid 2000s, uh, basically when they first like started transitioning into HD. That's when I really remember it. So like the cast that if we're all talking about like, oh, the cast that we went, uh, you know, that was around when we were in high school. That's like my uh, OG Andy Samberg, Bill Hader, Kristen Wiig, Jason Sudeikis. When they were getting introduced and you were uh, saying goodbye to Amy Poehler and uh, Tina Fey and Horatio Sands and all that jazz. Uh, but I would say that my favorite period going back was actually the late 80s. Uh, Phil Hartman will forever and always be my favorite cast member of all time. So him, John Lovitz, Dana Carvey, Mike Myers, uh, you got Jan Hooks in there, Nora Dunn. There's a lot of fantastic stuff. Kevin Nealon, very underrated Weekend Update anchor, in my opinion. Uh, and I've been podcasting about SNL. Uh, I podcasted on and off when the podcast we were originally a part of was initially on a network called Post Show Recaps. Then I took over full time in season 42. So I have become uh, very entrenched into SNL in the past few years in terms of deep analysis. But I have been watching since pretty much the turn of the century. Mario, I know you have a much deeper lineage than I do. Okay, yeah. My name is Mario Lanza. I am a.k.a. the other jerk off with a microphone. Um, I am most widely known as a survivor writer. I write about the TV show Survivor. I have a website called The Funny 115. But at heart, SNL is really my specialty show, and it's really the show that I care the most about. And again, you'll see, you'll hear Mike and I just being irreverent and joking around and stuff. But at heart, I really do care about the show. I really try to provide some insight you might not hear on other SNL podcasts. And again, no slight at any other SNL podcast. I just try to come up with something that maybe that would make our show a little different and bring that each week. As for my personal history, I was born in 1974, so I'm slightly older than the show itself. And 
I have one of these Cal Ripken Iron Man streaks going on that I have not missed an episode of SNL since about 1985 or 86. I don't remember exactly when I started, but like I've been through so many iterations of the show. I've seen it ebb and fall. I've seen it get good and bad and completely one of the best shows on TV, completely unwatchable, often within three or four episodes of each other. Like it's not that unusual for the show to just vacillate wildly. So I have this really long streak of episodes. I can tell you pretty much anything about uh, the show from that period. I just remember sketches. I memorize them. I have all my favorites on tape. My favorite eras, it's really hard to say because there's a lot of things I like about the show, a lot of things I don't like about the show. I was a big fan of the mid to late 90s when Will Ferrell, David Koechner, Mark McKinney, all those guys took over the show. And it was right after one of the worst eras in SNL when Sandler and Farley were just taking over and just ruining everything. And it was like the year after that when Farrell and all them showed up and they really had nothing to lose. Like everyone assumed the show was gone. It was dead. It was so bad. And all these new people showed up. Like it was an entirely new cast. And for about two years, everything was so innovative and new and just, it was just different. It was a whole different era of unproven cast members. And I loved the spirit of that era. And then, you know, we've had ups and downs since then, but there was another era I really liked. And it's the one Mike himself was the one that he got into SNL, which is the uh, Jason Sudeikis, you know, Taron Killam, that era. I was so entranced by that era that I actually wrote a website. I have a website out there called the SNL Funny 115, which is my 115 favorite SNL sketches since the year 2000. And almost all of them are from that era, about 2008 through about 2014, that I just loved. It was so innovative, and there weren't a lot of recurring characters, and it was just silly. And there was a lot of conceptual writer's sketches. And at heart, I am a comedy writer. So that's the stuff that I, you will hear me bring it up in these podcasts, little ideas, little turns of phrase, little things that I think are great writer's jokes that maybe the layman in the audience might not always appreciate. So those are my two favorite eras. There's a couple eras I don't like too much. I don't especially like being negative about SNL just because I think there is so much negativity out there. And the audience of SNL has always been very proprietary. Like when a show or a sketch doesn't work, they'll get angry. And you'll like hear them on the internet, like, this sucked. I'm so mad. This show used to be good. And like people get so viscerally angry, like they own a part of the show. So I will always try to point out the positives and something interesting. And I will always try to bring something to your attention. Maybe you wouldn't have noticed just watching this if you don't obsess over the show. And uh, to cap it off, my favorite cast members of all time, uh, Norm MacDonald, one of my favorites. I will forever be uh, uh, praising Norm. I love currently Heidi Gardner. I have raving about her for weeks, how good she is for years, actually, for since last year on the podcast. And say just as a trivia note, just to give me a little bit of street cred here, that not only was I one of the biggest Will Ferrell fans on the face of the earth, it was like years before most people really started to talk about him in the mainstream. And I am proud to say that not only was I one of the first people on the internet writing SNL reviews back in the mid to late 90s, I ran the very first Will Ferrell fan site back in 1997. And I'm very proud of that trivia, Mark. I hope that goes on my tombstone one day. So I hope you, I've given you enough uh, backstory to appreciate that. Mike and I, we really, appre- we really love the show and we really have a lot of respect for it. So we're here to uh, hopefully make your SNL podcast experience a little better. That being said, uh, so looking at the first three episodes of this season, I do agree with you that I don't know if my opinions would vary between episodes, but I would say the first two episodes were fine. Mm-hmm. They were fine. I think that both of the hosts, I think both Adam Driver and Aquafina, were very capable and they threw themselves headfirst into the material, even when it wasn't the strongest. I'm sure we're going to get into that, but it felt like the writing just wasn't there really from any sort of perspective. But to your point, I feel like something shifted when we hit the Seth Meyers episode, whether it was sort of like the John Mulaney episode, uh, you know, Seth bringing in this whole sort of new tone or bringing things to light that maybe they didn't necessarily work on uh, in the moment, dusting off some, you know, uh, old pieces to show out on the show floor. It just felt like the, the, the tone, I would say, in this modern day era of SNL, this like Colin Joe's Michael Che, Ken Sublette run era of SNL really does focus on that silliness. Uh, it's just like goofy and wacky and zany when it's at its best. I mean, look at the sketches that really did well last year, like a lobster singing Les Mis or a man who is uh, obsessed with the movie Shrek and gets really serious when anyone badmouths Shrek. Like those are insanely goofy ideas. There's nothing visceral. There's nothing really that satirical 
we're biting about it. It's, for lack of a better term, good, clean fun. And I feel like the last episode really swung back into that territory. And that, that was the first time this season when I had said it before that I felt season 43, the back half particularly, was pretty darn strong. That was the first time this season I felt like we had swayed back into that territory. The other two might have just been warm-ups for that, you know, nice line drive that the third episode hit. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of simplistic. This is it's, it's not really a perfect analogy, but I always say that SNL, when it's angry and it's trying to make a point, doesn't really work all that well. Because it, it, historically, this has not been an angry show. It's really kind of diversion. It's silly. It thumbs its nose at comedy, at, tase, at good taste, at the rules. So when the show is not angry then I think it tends to work a little better. And the Seth Meyers one is a big difference. That show was just really just loose. And it's really funny because I have a friend who hasn't watched SNL in a couple of years because he was just kind of fed up with how angry it was getting, how, you know, political and just, you know, heavy handed and always trying to make a point and try to get applause from the audience. And I, I told him, you know, you may want to watch the Seth Meyers episode. He's like, oh, I don't really watch SNL anymore. I'm like, no, watch, watch this S, this Seth Meyers one. It's a little different than what we're used to from SNL over the past maybe year and a half, two years. And he watched it. He's like, that was like an entirely different show. That's not the show that I'm used to seeing. And I'm like, yeah, it was really interesting the direction they went in that. So again, it's not quite the perfect analogy, but the Seth Meyers one, there was a a lightness to that one and just a silliness that I really did appreciate. I, I'm right there with you on this one. So I guess we can sort of get into, I guess, any things that particularly stood out, whether it was from a sketch perspective or like a general trend perspective uh and any thoughts you have initially anything stick out to you that you're you're jumping to talk about um let's see i'll just do a quick review i have very minimal notes because i i i I have a lot to say so i don't want to write them down i want to keep it spontaneous but like adam driver episode like you said they're just kind of getting warmed up trying to figure out the hand they've been dealt and the cast they have and I really didn't think it was that strong, although I think he is very strong. And this is something I was saying a couple weeks ago on us on uh, Twitter that Adam Driver is a fantastic host. Like he can reach levels of emotion, commitment to character that most hosts cannot do. And maybe you saw that in the uh, Abraham Parnassus, the oil baron sketch, which I just loved. But that was like the only sketch I thought was really above average in that episode. That's the only one thing that stood out. The Aquafina one I thought had the opposite problem in that. I thought a lot of the ideas were pretty good. And like you said, Aquafina threw herself into it. I don't think she has a lot of presence. She doesn't really have the commanding stage presence that Adam Driver has yet, probably because she's not, you know, like a trained dramatic actor like he is. So it kind of had the opposite issue, but there was some really good stuff in that one. I'm trying to remember off the top of my head. I like the, uh, the GOP locker room opening. I thought that was actually pretty kind of funny. Yeah. I, I want to put in pin in that. Cause I want to talk about the general idea of cold opens and political stuff yeah. later, but I will say, yeah, I think that the, the cold, the cold open. And I would say, I do agree with John and his take on the podcast that I think, uh, while the pumpkin stuff was not necessarily Beck and Kyle's like funniest good neighbor pre-tape, I thought it was solid enough in an episode that wasn't terribly solid. Yeah. Well, the, the Adam driver episode, everything was kind of okay except for the oil baron. The Aquafina one, there was stuff that was really good. I love the cricket wireless. That was such a fantastic little turn at the yeah, end. I didn't see coming. But then you had one like the baby shower, which was almost unwatchable. And I hate to say that because I know how hard it is to do a show like SNL. I just thought that was a complete train wreck. It just didn't work. So that one had ups and downs. But yeah, then the, then the Seth Meyers one, even though I keep saying that was a great show, it really wasn't. If you look at like I was laying out the sketches, it was really, really strong the first half and really pretty weak towards the end. But I just appreciated what they were aiming for in that one. They were aiming really high and conceptual on some of the stuff. And it might not have worked, but it's like, after the end of the day, I like, I tip my cap. I'm like, I appreciate that you went for that, that Bayou whatever joke, that, that Southern one. Like, I don't think it worked for me, but like, that was a fun try. So nice try on that one. So I really appreciated the spirit of the third one. That's why I think we are after three episodes that first one kind of, eh, second one ups and downs, but the third one, they were really trying for something. And even though I don't think they always hit it, I think it was a very noble effort. I'm surprised that the uh, the Bayou Roundup one was not the <laughs> 10 to 1 because it was bananas. <laughs> Considering that half of your panel was a, a, a like a walking bipedal alligator and a sentient chili pepper. Like, it was completely insane. And that being said, I don't know, for some reason, Beck Bennett just killed me. And they talked about it on this podcast, how he was able to just completely go go on and on with that drawl. Uh, he, he really killed it in particular. Yeah, there's there was just a lot of fun stuff in that. And like you said, it felt more like a conventional episode of SNL, whereas the first two, they were sort of still had the training wheels on. You know, they were trying stuff out. I don't know if the Seth Meyers episode was a classic, mm-hmm. like John would necessarily deem it, but I would say it was, it was good and at least 
teed things up nicely, and especially with a veteran host uh, coming back. Uh, hopefully, they'll sort of continue this trend. I, I want to segue to talking about the cold open slash the political stuff. Uh, Mario, you are notably someone who is uh, admittedly not that tapped into, you know, the political vein. But SNL in its recent days, and especially the headline that's been grabbing, I feel like it feels like it owes a debt of gratitude to have to acknowledge this, especially in its cold opens. Do you have any particular thoughts about the three cold opens we saw between uh, the Brett Kavanaugh testimonials with Matt Damon as Brett Kavanaugh, the locker room talk, uh, the lo- locker room talk, the locker room uh, congratulatory ceremony, or Kanye meeting Alec Baldwin as Trump in the overall Oval Office? Yeah, surprisingly, I actually like two out of the three cold openings. And I will just kind of uh, give a little asterisk to what you said that I'm not especially political. I'll even go so far as that. And I'll, I flat out said this before. I don't think political comedy is generally comedy. Political comedy is generally just you trying to get applause from the audience, which is like, to me, that's almost abhorrent to someone who was raised on Norm MacDonald, just saying whatever the hell he wants and just the audience just aghast at what he would say. That when you have people up there saying stuff and getting applause, it's almost like the opposite of comedy to me. So that's where I'm coming from. And that's where it all comes from. But like the first one, the Kavanaugh one, I didn't think it was great, but I didn't think it was horrible either. It was really long. Like, it was like, what, 10 minutes long? It was insanely long. It it might be the longest cold open I can think of, at least in recent history. Because not only did they keep going back to Kavanaugh, understandably so, but we went down the line of at least seven senators who each got like 20 to 30 seconds to do their thing. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I didn't hate it, but I didn't love it either. It was better than most of the cold openings last year. Just where it was exact same Trump, exactly the every sketch was exactly the same. The second one with the GOP locker room, I really thought was funny, and I remember tweeting about it when it was on. I'm like, it's been so long since I've really loved an SNL cold opening. I kind of forgot what it felt like. Like that one just seemed kind of silly and goofy. Like, yeah, I was trying to make a point, but it wasn't going for the applause breaks like they usually do. It was just kind of goofy. So I really liked that one a lot. The one with Trump and Kanye this week, obviously Alec Baldwin's going to come back. I'm not the biggest fan of Alec Baldwin on there, but. If you're going to use them, that was a pretty good medium, I thought. And again, I just have to tip my cap. Again, they actually use Chris Redd in there as opposed to you know some celebrity. So they actually use a cast member, which I love. So I've actually liked two out of the three, out of the three cold openings, and that's kind of surprising to me because I think I liked zero of them last year. So we're going on a hot streak. Yeah, I would, I would agree. I think we talked about this on our preseason show that I feel like the cold opens are at least most attractive to me when it's not... I feel like the first cold open is the comedy equivalent of quote tweeting somebody on Twitter and just writing this. <laughs> like you're you're not offering any sort of opinion. You're just presenting the facts as they happen. Yeah. And yes, I can absolutely understand how satirical comedy in this political age is extremely tough. Uh, but I, I don't know. I, I don't know if it's necessarily as adequate as just saying like, okay, we'll just sort of like play out exactly what happened you know i don't know if it necessarily plays as well so i agree that like i could understand uh the shock factor of having matt damon on there though it's it is something to say that matt damon who was a notable defender of harvey weinstein uh playing someone like brett kavanaugh like um, surprisingly adept casting i might say maybe unintentionally so uh but uh, i i think that i agree that like the the idea was fun we're in a smidge too long uh going down the line of people of course we had to have kate in there uh, playing a center specifically, you know, someone like who we're supposed to hate the most in this case, Lindsey Graham, which even like warranted applause. And the second one, I totally agree. That's why I liked it so much is because we're doing a different take on it. We're taking these people out of the situations in which we literally saw them on C-SPAN three days ago and, you know, built more characters out of them. That's why Eric and Don Jr. are by far, in my opinion, the most solid part of this administration that it made for good comedy characters is because they were able to lift this character off of the page and develop it into something that had mileage to it. The problem about putting these characters in the situations that we saw them in is that like, okay, what are you going to do with Lindsey Graham after, after the Kavanaugh hearings? You can't really put him in a, in a scenario and build a, a character around him. So I feel like they've been able to do that with the Trump brothers that I sort of wish they'll able, be able to bring into the cold opens as well. And yeah, the third one was interesting. I'm not a, huge fan on on uh, baldwin as trump especially when he makes references to himself like it just brings up again this sort of ooky thing that baldwin's kind of a problematic person himself so to be tri- playing trump is a i know a bit punching down in a way but i feel like sort of having him be the straight man is a fun warped dynamic that we don't see nearly as often as we should yeah no i totally agree that was the one of the few times they actually did something with him and you could make the argument it's because he was bouncing off another character he was actually bouncing off kanye so it's not just trump standing in a podium 
like just saying exactly what Trump said in real life, which again, you know, regardless of your feelings about Trump, at least do something with it. Don't just repeat what he says over and over. Although, yeah. can, I, can I give my little speech here? There's something that I used to talk about on our, our uh, SNL Funhouse podcast, how we got to this point in SNL history and the political sketches. Absolutely. R- rewind the clock back. It is a history lesson. <laughs> okay. I just, this is a, just a little speech I want to give because I think it's actually fairly insightful that my, one of my favorite eras of SNL, I said earlier, was the one that Taryn Killam, you know, Vanessa Bayer, when they first showed up on the scene, 2008 or so. And what's really interesting about that era when you watch it, and this is what it jumped out at me when I did my SNL Funny 115, is that there was almost no political humor on that show, that whole era. Like, they never did anything about Obama, really. And if they did, it was like because he was cool and fun. They didn't really, there was not really any insight about politics during that era. And that's why I love it so much because it was just so silly. They didn't really try to make a point. They were just developing characters and themes and ideas. And it was so creative. And so SNL was a very apolitical, non-political show for about, what, 2008 until about 2016. It was a very, I would say, almost a golden age of SNL. It's fantastic how many good sketches came out of that era that really were not topical. They were just little one-offs, and they were really good. They would just hold up well over time. So you had almost a decade of SNL being apolitical, and then in 2016, you know, Trump wins the election, and everyone's shocked. I mean, even one, even people who like Trump were shocked. Like that wasn't the plan. Like everyone thought Hillary. We were building Hillary up to be the president, and Kate had her great impression, and SNL was all set to be this really non-political, silly show. And that's what I think had really threw them for a loop: is that that Trump election forced them to be the type of show that they are not generally. They have not generally been in recent years. They were not really a political show, and then they were forced to be. And they didn't have the right cast for that. They didn't have, you know, like Jim Downey as a writer. They didn't have the right writers. Like, they had people writing main justice. And all of a sudden, we're supposed to write insightful political sketches. That's not the right type mm. of show. So that's always been my argument that SNL has, has, for two years, been trying to recover from Trump winning because they were not ready for that. That was not the type of show that they do. And I know you hear this in the news now. Oh, it's great to see SNL's take on the political news. But that's not what they were doing for like eight years. So I think they're still, to this day, still recovering a little bit from being forced to be turned into a political show in an angry political time, where, whereas I don't think that's, they're not really designed to be that. This whole cast, when they showed up, was a bunch of just theater geeks and like, you know, acting nerds like Taron Killam and A.D. Bryant and stuff. They were just, again, go back to that era and watch how silly it was and then watch how it drastically shifted when Trump became president and how unprepared they were. So I think we're two and a half years into that. And they're just now, or even last year, just starting to kind of recover from that, get back into the show that they wanted to be in the first place. So that's every opinion I have about political sketches, frame it in that viewpoint that I, I think this is not the type of show SNL wants to do. I think they're forced to, and they know they have to because they're a big voice, but that's not really the type of show they run anymore. And you start to see that a bit. I mean, look at the Adam Driver episode, for instance, where we have the cold open, we have update, and then we have, you know, this uh, 10 to one sketch about the, the, you know, the the Ku Klux Klan people <laughs> moving yeah. to Vermont, or you have uh, the Seth Meyers episode where you have the cold open, you have update, and you have again this Bayou like liberal roundup thing. So it seems like they are I don't know maybe they're starting to like pull themselves out of the pool a bit where like they'll do the requisite cold open and they'll do update, but otherwise uh, and this episode do have the cricket one, so they might do like one other mention of something but maybe they're starting to sort of realize like okay let's figure out what we want to be and maybe what we want to be is let's save our prime material for the cold opens and update which i feel like we should especially from the latter perspective because we we talked about this all last season about how you know update has really become a, a great sort of lighthouse uh in the middle of snl even during its darkest times and i f- completely agree even during the, the the first couple okay episodes this season update has been consistently solid in my opinion yeah and again you'll get political stuff on update but you get ruth bader ginsburg but that's not really just ruth bader ginsburg doing political stuff that's that's uh kate mckinnon doing shtick which she's so good at. I mean, that's the thing. You can never say enough about how good she is in character. Like, that's why it works, because she's doing shtick, and she's doing little mannerisms and stuff. And then the Trump brothers as well. They work so well in Update, because they're bouncing off each other. You actually have really talented actors portraying, you know, real people, but they're actually doing character things between each other, and it's really funny. But then again, meanwhile, I'll just say, when it comes right down to it, what SNL wants to be doing is stuff like, so you want to date a magician, which has no relevance to anything. But it's like, you can always tell they really have so much glee in doing sketches like that, because that's the kind of stuff these, this core group of writers and performers likes doing. That's what they excel at. 
Well, you could tell a couple of performers really liked doing So You Want to Date a Magician <laughs> to the point of where I would say that actually might overrule the uh, the baby shower sketch as my least favorite across all three episodes. Yeah. And yeah, it's again, I, I said earlier, I don't like saying negative things about SNL and cast members. The problem is there's a couple people in the cast that are just not strong in live sketches. And there's no way around it. You can't <laughs> work around that. But you put them in sketches, they're going to break. They're going to miss their cues. And it's always repeatedly the same people. Again, I'm, I'm going to point out it's not Heidi Gardner you see doing that. <laughs> it's some other <laughs> people. So, but I'm just saying there's, it's, it, there's certain members of this cast that are not especially strong in live sketches. And that's, I don't know if anybody would really dispute that. Well, I want to segue back to update. Maybe that's sort of along those lines because I, I feel like, you know, going in, maybe I had Che and Joe's on my mind where, in my opinion, they did not do a great job hosting the Emmys that I'd sort of just forgotten how damn good they are behind that desk. They just, they have gone, they settled, have settled in such a great groove into the quote unquote roles they play bouncing off of each other. And like the, the little tangents they've gone up on are fantastic. Che in particular, I feel like has done a really great job and they've done this really interesting thing on update where like they'll bring back jokes we saw that with uh you know che and the cause and uh bill cosby talk he just keeps focusing on the fact of why is his name what was his character's name cliff huxtable <laughs> if it was the cosby show or uh the second episode had colin fantastically or i think it was i don't know if it was colin or michael came back with this fantastic uh second mention of it's a horrible time for it's a scary time for young men everywhere like they are really making it a different tone than what came before them and you saw that firsthand with uh seth myers where i thought i thought really had some interesting moments but it didn't feel the same and i feel and i think it's okay that it didn't feel the same because that tells me that they are doing something different than seth seth is sort of like the sardonic straight a student these two guys are like the two class clowns in the back throwing paper balls at people up front yeah and what's what's fascinating for me especially i did do a lot of comedy writing myself is that jost and shay have such different styles and approaches to a joke like i love hearing the setup and i try to predict in my head where it's going to go and jost will go one of two ways he'll try to get some applause like clapter from the audience he'll make a good point or it'll just be some really insanely witty intelligent harvard joke that i never would have seen coming and like that was really clever and you're not going to get that from shay but shay i can never predict where the punchline is going to go he's constantly throwing curveballs at me and i just appreciate that about him because again he'll go on rants and some of his jokes don't work but and again, some of his jokes don't even have punchlines. They're almost Norm MacDonald jokes in a way. Like the joke is the attitude or the setup or just the gist of the joke. There's not really even a punchline. But I just, again, they bring such different energies and styles of joke writing to the show that it's hard for me to say anything bad about them. I've always liked both of them. Again, I wish Colin would go for less Clapter. I do, I do not like Clapter. I just don't think it's noble approach to comedy. But he's so good at it, I can't really fault him because he... The Colin Jost has a way with words. He knows how to work a phrase. I will say that. Mm, well, speaking towards someone who has a bit of a different energy, these three episodes, super Pete Davidson heavy. And understandably so, mm-hmm. given the news that happened over the summer. The Adam Driver episode in particular, we had not only Pete appearing on Update to talk about his new relationship and engagement, but we also had the continuance of the SNL Cinematic Universe with Kyle Mooney trying to uh, impersonate Pete in order to come across as cool. It's a little crazy with celebrity culture that we've essentially witnessed, uh, you know, him come into his relationship and then it end up being over after the three episodes that we're, we're wrapping up here. But what did you think, you know, all the actual stuff about the relationship aside, what did you think about both the focus on Pete and his big news and also Pete's actual material here in these first three episodes? Yeah, Pete's another guy I have such mixed feelings about. I'd imagine you're probably similar to this. I'm probably going to step on your toes by giving the exact same (laughs) opinion. But like Pete is one of those guys I don't think he brings much to the show. Like I'm not entirely sure why he's on SNL because he's not good in live sketches. Like he really exists only to do these commentaries on Weekend Update. Now that being said, his commentaries are always funny. (laughs) So it's one of those Mm. like I I don't want to say you know take him off the show and it would be better because then I miss all his commentaries which. I think are almost a hundred percent funny because he's so good. And like, he just doesn't really give a crap, which I love that attitude. Like he'll screw up as part of his joke. He's like, I don't care. Like, I just love that spirit about him. Now I've said before, I wish the show wouldn't be so insular. I wish they wouldn't make so many jokes about, Oh, the cast members personal life. Oh, what the cast member did over the summer. Oh, this is what happened on the show last week. Oh, Kanye, you know, addressed people after the show, which we didn't even see on the show. So they're being insular about stuff that no one actually saw. I wish they wouldn't do that, but 
it's also kind of a byproduct of what celebrity culture and what humor is now that it's kind of expected to be a little more insular, which again, I, as someone who's watched SNL for so long, I know they didn't always do that. That hasn't, that wasn't the norm for many years. That's kind of a recent development. And Pete is kind of the, the, you know, the poster child for this. What if Pete's on the show, we're going to talk about Pete's life or what happened to Pete or, you know, Pete, who's Pete's dating. So it's not my favorite thing on the show, but I have to say, I think Pete is so funny when he's just talking that it's hard for me to say it's not good to watch. Yeah. And I think that interestingly enough, I've said in the past that I feel like Pete's strongest material is talking about himself. I still think one of his, one of my favorite pieces of his was when he uh, was talking about the Staten Island and how uh, Staten Island newspapers and how they favor Colin, but hate Pete at the same time, just because his strongest comedic material is always going to be based on himself. But that being said, between his two update appearances, between number one, I'm engaged to Ariana Grande and number two, just him riffing on all the Kanye fiasco. I actually like the second one better. Maybe it's just because the material was stronger. It was less self-deprecating. Pete was very self-deprecating <laughs> in that first one. And uh, there were jokes that didn't necessarily land. Can't say I was a huge fan of him joking about the fact that he was going to uh, throw away his his fiance's birth control pills to make sure that they stayed together. I know that caught a bit of a flack online, but I just loved his lines like, uh, you know, people are wondering why Che isn't talking about this and I am. Well, uh, the, the, the Kanye is crazy and Kanye is black and we know which one's at the wheel at this point. Like he just had, it's, it's crazy to think about what he was able to turn around over the course of a week as opposed to like what he might have spent, you know, three months or several months working on in terms of typical stand-up material so maybe it's just me being purely impressed by what he was able to turn around and yes there might have been other points as to you know uh other cast members i could have talked about it but i just thought he did such a good job responding to kanye to the point that that might have been my favorite part of that second episode hmm. okay yeah i mean i've i've heard a lot of people say that i again i, I didn't really feel that strongly about the kanye thing one way or another so i wasn't really getting riled up by his his speech but again i it was a good speech again. He was very funny. And, and I will, I will flat out say something that I'm 44 years old. I am perhaps not the Pete Davidson market or the, the demographic. Like I've been told every time I point out stuff, like I'm not really sure why Pete's on the show. I'll have people barrage me with tweets or emails like, well, Pete is really big among the younger, de- younger demographic. They love him and they bring him in because he brings in the young audience. So like, maybe I'm not supposed to really appreciate Pete on the show. Like I don't really get him on the show sometimes, but if he's bringing in that young audience, who am I to say it's the wrong it's the wrong plan? I, I guess, I mean, Lauren has clearly been running the show longer than I have, so I will defer to him on this one. Well, let's talk about another person who has uh, made a splash in update. She really made it last season, but this season in particular, because I know you wanted to talk about uh, an extension of SNL, the online community, and their reactions to Heidi Gardner's <laughs> appearance as the Goop spokesperson and sort of uh, the reviews that came around it after the fact. Yeah, well, it's no surprise if anybody's been listening to our show. I have been talking about Heidi Gardner for almost since the minute she joined the show, just because there was something about her and the way she gets into character and the way she commits to a character. I'm like, we haven't really seen someone like this on SNL before. Like maybe some, you don't want to compare cast members, but Kate McKinnon kind of has that skill where she just absolutely gets into a character and does not budge. Like she's not coming out. But Heidi takes it even to another level where it's almost, and this is a weird concept to, to six. I've, I've heard people say, well, Heidi Gardner's the greatest thing. It's amazing. And I've seen a lot of people, I mean, I'll be honest here on YouTube and Twitter say, I don't get this chick. Like she's just, the, it's the same thing over and over. And it's not even funny. Like I don't really get her shtick. But to me, it's almost like performance art. And that's the one thing that way I can, I can describe Heidi Gardner. Like she commits to a character and she's going to go with this. Like her characters go through arcs when she's on Weekend Update, which is something I've, I haven't seen probably in a long time. I don't know if we've ever seen that. Like her character will start low, then go high and then crash and then come back. And like, you see like four variants of the character in a five minute performance piece. And again, Mm. if you watch her, what's really interesting is she doesn't look at the cue cards. Like she never gets flustered. She doesn't get thrown by a line. She never laughs. Like she is locked in. And it's so fascinating to see how deep she gets into a character. Now, of course, the other side of the coin is people say, well, she's not funny. I disagree. I think she's amazing. I think it's so funny what she does and just how deep she goes. But they're not obvious setup punchline, you know, just a little setting up a, a catchphrase or something like other people might do. So she's never going to be as popular. Like I used to say last year, I think Heidi's going to take over the show. She's going to be the star. I've kind of amended that. I don't think she's ever going to be that popular where she's beloved like Kate McKinnon or Kristen Wiig or, you know, Will Ferrell at their peak because she's going to be kind of niche. 
But I think she is so fantastic at what she does. And again, I'm not sure we've ever seen a performer quite like her. Maybe Will Forte is the closest I can think of when he just lock into mm. a character. And again, he, they'd have pathos and depth and they'd, you know, they weren't always in for, you know, on the joke, they weren't always a hero. You just almost were awkward. You feel bad for them because they were so pathetic and good at selling this character. So my thing with Heidi is I just really hope people appreciate her. I don't know if she's ever going to be the biggest star in SNL, but I really think she's talented and she has a gift that we don't see much on this type of show. So I just hope people appreciate what they're seeing every week. Yeah, I mean, I would push back a bit in that, like, I don't know, I I at least didn't think in the early 2010s that Kate McKinnon would become the big breakout star oh, yeah. of the cast. Uh, and that sort of happened. So who knows in terms of the way the show's going and the way comedy's going? I'm glad she's gotten more. Like, I, I tweeted this, this. I feel like the Seth Meyers episode was also sort of like a Heidi Gardner showcase, mm-hmm. where not only did she have, you know, her spotlight as the group spokesperson, but she also was in that sketch, the, the Koopa sketch with Seth, where it was her and, and Seth, you know, working together, which does not usually happen for a featured player. Usually you bring in someone like a, you bring in like Cecily or you bring in 80 to do that. So that definitely says something. So, I mean, who knows? Speaking towards Kate McKinnon, I know we're sort of like randomly jumping around cast members uh-huh. here. I'm going to float something out and I want to see if you agree or disagree. <laughs> it might be a bit contentious. I don't know. I'm, I'm feeling like, I feel like Kate McKinnon should leave soon. This is going to be blasphemous, <laughs> but I, I I don't know. I feel like, you know, maybe it's because when I saw her play a politician, a male politician in the makeup with the same type of voice for the umpteen time, I said, like, she's absolutely fantastic. Uh-huh. But I I wonder if there's something bigger for her that she can do outside of SNL, considering that now it seems like we are sort of circling the track with her. Oh, wow. I have a lot to say about Kate. Um, I agree with you on one sense because it almost feels like she has one foot out the door or you could even look at it the other way. She's kind of being pushed out the door like it's not really her show anymore. And again, she's had a long run on the show, although to say what to point out to uh, follow up on what you said earlier, you said, she, you know, it took her a while to kind of grow into the like the biggest star in the show. That's absolutely true. I remember back on the, the message boards and stuff when she first joined the show, people are like, she's talented, but why does she always mug at the camera? She'd always turn and mug and do this stupid little look. It was like Melody Hutzel in a way. I'm like, my God, that's annoying. And she eventually lost that habit and she developed into someone that is as strong and again, just the fantastic character actor that we know. And I have often thought that well, I'm, as well. I'm like, why is she still on the show? Like Kate is a little too good for the show at a certain point. She should almost have like her own show. Like it's weird to have her, you know, as a side character in someone else's sketch. But at the same time, I, I think that I'm like, she, she's bigger than this. She should be gone. But then I realized I'm not sure what else she would do. Like she mm. was in the Ghostbusters movie, but it's not, she's not the star of the Ghostbusters movie. She's the quirky side character. Like, can you picture Kate McKinnon as the lead in a movie? It seems very yeah. odd to me because she's so talented at getting into many multiple characters, almost like Dan Aykroyd. And I've always argued Aykroyd was never really a great leading man in movies because he doesn't do that. He's a character guy. So I, in a way, I think Kate has had a great run. She has nothing else to prove. It's, it's, it's not the worst thing in the world if other people step in and, uh, you know, kind of take the show over from what she's been doing. But I do have to say one thing, and I hate to say this, but that when she always plays the the Southern male senator in a sketch, are we not supposed to point out that most of those aren't very good? <laughs> like, I hate to say that, like, it's always kind of the same variant of her doing Ellen just with a rubber face on. And I've never once saw, seen her do that and thought, oh, that was the greatest point of part of that sketch. It's always like, oh, there's Kate, you know, they throw her in there like she does a little, you know, dog and pony show because she do her Ellen skit or Ellen shtick. So it's one of those things like, I'm not entirely sure she's the strongest character or the performer on the show anymore, but I, I feel like she should be off somewhere doing this stuff for a living kind of as the star of her own show. It's, it's, a, it's a weird time for her at the moment. Yeah, I do agree that I think that sort of has what has made my opinion come around was sort of when you watch her do Lindsey Graham and you watch her do Debet Goldry and you watch her do Ruth Bader Ginsburg, which she's done a bunch of times before. And you're like, she's great. There's a reason why these characters stick around. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could argue Madam, there might be a different reason as to why they sort of like put her in all these prosthetics because, you know, it's a runner and also it's sort of like a little bit of a middle finger to, you know, the people that are basically trying to, to put these ideas out there. But it, it sort of did bring about these ideas in my head of like, okay, we've sort of seen this before and it, it can always get tough. I mean, on the other side of the coin, you have someone like Keenan who is has somehow been able to turn that reliability into like an asset uh, where like we almost always know how he's going to react, but that becomes like the great hook for the sketch. Yeah. 
And I, I agree in terms of like not to, to uh, you know, tangential, tangentialize too much into like Kate McKinnon's IMDb and everything. But I would say her closest starring role was uh, she was in like the I'm Dating a Spy or whatever movie with Mila Kunis over the summer. Uh, I mean, she's been in a bunch of movies. I don't know if any of them have done particularly well, but it does show, though, that she at least has some marketability that people are go- are wanting her to put in film. So if we're looking at it from that perspective and also knowing how uh, some people like Taron Killam sort of uh, got off of SNL because uh, powers that be were sort of looking at, at them dividing their attention. Who knows how things are going to happen in the next year or so? Yeah. Oh, and before we put Kate out to pasture too much, I still think she's fantastic. And let me point out. Oh, one absolutely. Of the, yeah, yeah. One of the best performances in these three episodes is in the Q&A sketch the film festival with seth myers where she plays the russian girl who's like turned on by the credits oh so good she's like yeah. are these people dead <laughs> I know. so like i think kate mckinnon would be the first person to tell you no one's gonna see me in a movie playing myself because i'm not interesting like i play characters so like she does such fantastic little character work and i almost think it's a detriment it's in her detriment that people hold her up as the star of the show because she's like i'm just a character performer don't hold me to that standard i'm not the star so like, I feel bad for her in a way, but I cannot see, I can't fathom an instance in the future where she's like the star of a movie as herself, because that's just not what she does. That's, it would be out of context for Kate McKinnon. So we'll have our fingers crossed for her career outside of SNL. I feel like, to your point, she's still doing a lot of fun stuff. I really did love that sort of, <laughs> uh, I think John called it like a parade of idiots sketch with the film talk bats, just because they were all so good between Kate being, you know, are those uh, are those people of the dead? Uh, you have Cecily with her daughter, which was a dog in a in a sling. Like there, and I love the the rug pull of Leslie. Uh, it's asking a question about like uh, her husband getting home late, and it turns out that Keenan was the uh, the moderator is her is her husband. So there's a lot of fun stuff going on there. Speaking of which, I, I sort of want to drill down to a couple of key sketches. There were obviously a lot over the course of three episodes, but I think there are some ones to tease out that will really garner some discussion. And I feel like we need to start with, without a doubt, the best sketch of that Adam Driver episode. We mentioned it before. Let's talk about this Oil Baron career day. I, I mean, I know this is like right up your alley. So go ahead and talk to me all your thoughts about it. You know, my okay, I will say the ultimate compliment I can give about this sketch. And this is why when it was announced that Adam Driver was going to host SNL, I heard a lot of people kind of were disappointed in it. They're like, why? What's he plugging? Like, oh, why is Adam Driver? He's not a star. I'm like, did you see Undercover Boss, Starkiller Base? You see how good he is on SNL? And like, here's the ultimate compliment I can give that sketch. That sketch, Abraham Parnassus, was exactly what Will Ferrell would have done in the late 90s. That is a mm. Will Ferrell sketch. That's a character sketch. That's the guy who get, goes the most crazy in a character being thrown out there on the stage and making everybody laugh, and he just commits to it. And Driver did not break in that sketch. Like, you didn't see him fumble lines. Driver made people break in <laughs> yeah. that sketch. That's how good he was. That's And that's the compliment I can give about Adam Driver, why he's so good. He can reach a level of intensity and commitment to a character that most hosts cannot. And I read a sentence somewhere that said, the difference between Adam Driver and other hosts is that when a sketch is funny in an Adam Driver episode, it's because of Adam Driver. It's not in spite of Adam Driver. Like, if he really dominates a sketch, he can take it over. And most hosts cannot do that. And that was such a fun sketch. And just, again, just watching him go crazy. And, like, when he stabs the bird, you can see everybody in the cast break because they were not expecting him to do that. Driver catches them off guard. I don't think he was supposed to puncture it. I don't know what he was supposed to do. But you can see 80 break. You can see Pete absolutely lose it. You can see them all laughing. Even the extras, I think, start cracking up because Driver's so focused and enraged and intense, he literally catches them off guard. And again, just the writing in that sketch, the more you watch it, the little dialogue you think, the little dialogue you notice, because Driver was screaming and just doing mannerisms as he was as he was acting it out but the lines in there were great too like you know how i grew up in a saucepan and my my bones never hardened but my spirit did like that, that is such a fantastic turn of phrase so that that is probably my favorite sketch of the three episodes i think that's the one you're going to remember from this season i mean it'll be tough for me to top that I and mean, again because again that's a will ferrell sketch that a ghost of all people managed to pull off so well what were your thoughts on that are you as high on it as i was Oh, completely. It was so good. And for me, it, it wasn't, you know, just the performance. Like you said, it was the writing. 
it was things like, you know, oil is not for the weak. It is the milk of the earth and only the strong may suckle at its teat. And like what you mentioned before about how, uh, you know, I was born seven months too early and I was put in a pe- in a pan in a pizza oven until I was ripe enough to walk. Like these are this. It's very like John Mulaney esque in terms of like ridiculous specifics. And you gloss over just because, like you said, he's delivering this very Daniel Day Lewis and there will be blood esque levels of, of over the top intensity but the writing is so good and these like weird colloquialisms like him uh calling ad a marm was just that tick <laughs> that really tickled me it was so good and so i feel like i don't know it was it was sort of like a symbiotic relationship where one sort of fed into the other uh, i will say i mean melissa had a melissa via senor all the kudos to her for getting bumped up to main cast had a bit of a really interesting performance as that really excited kid but i mean adam driver just brought this completely home and in, in another world i would have swapped this with the Fortnite sketch which mm-hmm. i feel like was fun and had mikey day doing some fun physical comedy but that had much more wobbly legs whereas this one was put in that cast iron pot in that pizza oven to incubate for the entire show and when it got <laughs> released it was ready to take on the world yeah. <laughs> and just the repeated use of hr pickens i just i've, yes! I, I've, I've written all over my notes here make an hr pickens joke make an hr pickens joke because this again just the comedy writer in me loved that sketch that was a writer's sketch that was an actor's sketch that just was everything. And like, could you name one other host who could have pulled off that sketch? Like Justin Timberlake wasn't going to pull off that sketch. I'm not sure who would have. Yeah, it's true. I mean, you could say maybe something of a similar dramatic timbre, like Sterling K Brown. Yeah. Maybe he could, again, that's like the aforementioned Shrek sketch was sort of in that vein, but just the crazed terror behind him. I, I feel like that is just, uh, it's emblematic of Adam driver. And the fact that he was able to go from, mild-mannered dad to that over the course of a few live sketches was pretty good and i also i tweeted this about it one of the reasons why i wasn't a huge fan of the first episode as well i just felt like he was sort of criminally underutilized yeah which was which was surprising for a second time out i can understand the first time if you're like okay we don't know how this is going to work if you're gonna do well with comedy so we're just gonna float you out there a couple times but like he proved to have a solid episode to your point before so i was a little surprised that for the premiere back they said like you know, he was in a, a, a couple of live sketches and he was in a couple of pre-tapes, but that was basically it for him. Yeah, it's someday he's going to be a five timer like Adam Driver, in my opinion, could be a cast member. And if he was on the show, he'd be one of the best cast members. So he's going to be a five timer one day. Why not use him like that's even in the, the minor sketches, the one that I didn't like this, the coffee one, Dominico's. But I thought he was pretty funny. He's doing his best to try to save it. Well, it was literally like I rewatched the Ryan Gosling Terrazano's sketch from the season premiere of season 43. And mm-hmm. it pretty much is beat for beat. Like they pretty much put the script in front of the writer and said, OK, erase some nouns and write in some new nouns. Like yeah. it was literally the exact same sketch and all the power to him for putting forward that performance. But it was basically word for word what we saw one year ago that day. Yeah. And again, he's just so strong. You even watch the sketches that don't work. That one and the white supremacist one in Vermont. He's doing his best. And he's selling this character he's come up with. So again, I just, I really want to see more of Adam Driver and just use him, please. Stop giving us 10 minutes of Kavanaugh and throw a couple three-minute Adam Driver sketches in there. We'd love it. Yeah, especially since uh, we, and we saw, I was, I was glad we brought him back though, especially after that random appearance he made in a Cut for Time pre-tape with the Shape of Water people. <laughs> uh, I, I want to fast jump to the Seth Meyers episode because mm-hmm. I want to talk about something that is a bit polarizing, but arguably one of the bigger headline grabbers of the night in terms of SNL Let's talk about this Cosby sketch. <laughs> this won't get us in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what did you what did you ultimately think about it? I will say it was John Mulaney penned, so it was equal amounts of like absurd, but also grounded at the same time. Especially when you have Seth there as the requisite straight man to just talk about, remind everyone about all the horrible things that Cosby has done, which is the reason why he's there in the first place. But where do you sort of fall <laughs> on uh, the scale of reception to this sketch? <laughs> Keep in mind. My hero is Norm MacDonald, so there is no line that can be not be crossed in a sketch. So, <laughs> okay, with, this is the part where SNL After Party, if you want to cut out part of the episode, if you don't think it'll please your audience, you can probably cut this part. <laughs> but, okay, here's my little speech. I've been thinking about this all week because I knew this was going to come up. Here's what I love about Saturday Night Live, and it kind of goes back to The Onion. The movie, people that know the internet know the website, The Onion, and people always misinterpret The Onion. And the Onion, if you people don't know, it's a satirical website that makes fun of the news and makes horrible, horrible jokes and fake news that you'd never expect to see in comedy. And people are aghast when they see some of the jokes about it. And this is what I love about The Onion is that 
people will say, oh, it's satire. Oh, it's satire. I'm like, no, it's not satire. I think people completely misinterpret what The Onion is. The Onion is not satire. They're dicks. And that's what I love about them. I love that people are dicks and they're comedians and they will absolutely go for a joke that no one else will ever go for because it's in such poor taste. And I feel there's a very big dirt, dearth, dearth, I don't know how to pronounce that, dearth in the world of people being dicks in comedy nowadays. And again, I grew up in the era of Norm MacDonald, Sam Kinison, Nick DiPaolo, Bill Hicks, where that's what a comedian did. Like if there's something that you're not supposed to joke about, you go for it just because you can and because we're in America and F you and that's the spirit of comedy. And what I love about the Cosby sketch is that to me, it was so gleeful. And I think anyone would who was watching knows how gleeful they were performing that, how much fun they were having. It just felt like SNL was trying to be a dick. <laughs> and I love that about them because SNL historically is a show that is not only not in good taste, is at the forefront of poor taste. And if you know your SNL history like I do, you know they were doing stuff like Uncle Roy, the child molesting babysitter, and stunt baby and stunt puppy back in the 70s, which is abhorrent. But again, just because we're SNL and we're going to do this because someone gave, someone's paying us and we're on the air, we can do whatever we want. Watch this and I want to see your reaction to it. And that's kind of what the Cosby sketch felt like, that they were just going for a sketch that they knew was immediately going to you know, pucker up the buttholes of every single person watching. And you could hear it in the audience. The audience was not sure at all how to respond to that. But everyone I know who has watched that sketch was just laughing. They're like, oh my God, I can't believe SNL did that sketch. So to me, that was like a the spirit of SNL coming out again. Like the long lost <laughs> SNL rising from the ashes and remind, reminding people, you know what? We do bad taste and we can be dicks just like the onions. So I, I was so excited to see that sketch. Now, personally, from a technical point of view, I'm not entirely sure the sketch was as tight as it could have been. It was kind of sloppy. They were mm. blowing lines. Even Keenan cracked up at one time and he never cracks up but the glee behind that sketch and just the thought process behind it and just the absolute anger i see on twitter people saying oh you can't make jokes about that you can't do sketches about that i'm like they're snl you don't tell snl what to make fun of that's what they do so i personally could not have been happier than that i think it's a uh <laughs> this is a horrible analogy but when you see the spoiled little kid that says i, I don't eat vegetables i don't have to eat vegetables you know what's best for them? They should probably eat more vegetables. And that's how I feel with a lot of modern comedy audiences saying, oh, you can't make jokes about that. You can't do that. That's insensitive. I'm like, you know what? You should probably hear more jokes about that. It'd probably be good for you. So this will not be a popular opinion, but I love that sketch and I love the thought process behind it even more. And SNL, just feel free to wave your dick flag proudly because that's what you do and that's your history. Yes, the jerk off is encouraging you to wave your dick flag. It all makes sense now. Yeah. Uh, we are so canceled. Uh, no, I, I, I mean, I would agree. I didn't necessarily even think this was like, at least to me, this did not seem as, I don't know, offensive just because oh. they, they, they didn't really seem like they were saying anything. Oh. Like, I felt like if they were doing something, like, I can understand why something like uh, uh, Welcome to Hell that they did with the Sir Ronan episode was like last year made a really big statement this really didn't it was just like considering the fact that even bill cosby was literally just him embodying cliff huxtable which they lampshaded like they didn't even try to to mention things but you could yeah. tell that keenan and seth were just having so much fun uh you know say what you want to about some liars i know there's been some argument online about how they felt that seth was the straight man for a lot of the sketches and how that felt a little odd because usually the hosts are supposed to be front and center but like I feel like it's a little bit of a different case when it's an alum and when it's also an alum who, as we talked about during our preseason stuff, uh, does not necessarily have a sketch performance background. He's a writer and uh -huh. he can definitely talk comfortably in front of the camera, but there wasn't really any, uh, there weren't any big characters outside of like his, uh, he did Boston Powers as a runner and he did uh, the reception for the Appalachian Emergency Room. A recurring sketch but that was basically it so i really wasn't expecting that much like goofy stuff from him so i'm totally fine for him being a sounding board because he's also a really good straight man so like there's there wasn't much substance to it but no. i just really love the fluff we got you know the 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 turtle as quincy jones the poster being a poster of animal upside down that he thought was who dizzy gillespie uh him not being able to die instead he just danced himself out of a coma it was all so stupid but like i love stupid humor and this felt extremely stupid to me and i feel like it was good for snl to go 
stupid because again, like if they wanted to go scathing, they definitely could. Mm-hmm. But I feel like in almost making a mockery out of him, I don't know, you almost like dig in deeper. Well, yeah, and again, SNL doesn't work when it's an angry show. It works when it's a silly show. And I love that one. They would skate right up to the line of bad taste and kind of back off. Like it was almost like a, a musician playing a violin. Like <laughs> they had just the I'd hit the thing, they'd hit just the right tone. Although I can give a completely more innocent explanation for that sketch in that this might be Keenan's last show because, you know, we've heard that he has a sitcom coming and he's got this great Bill Cosby impression he's been doing his entire life. And he probably wanted to do it. Maybe one last swan song on SNL before he leaves. And there was a story in the news that Cosby's in jail and he's loving it and getting along. So it might've just been a tribute to Keenan. Like, let's let him do his one last sketch, just one last time. Yeah, maybe it's in bad taste, but you know, give the kid, he's been here for 15 years, let him do his Cosby one last time. And that's, if you want to look at it from a different perspective, I think that's a more noble way to look at it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Did you have any other sketches you wanted to uh, speak about, highlight or low light in particular? Uh, I will say the uh, film festival Q&A was Dark Horse for my favorite of the three episodes. It's going to be tough to beat the Oil Baron one, but I really like that one just because that was such a, you know, 2008 through 2014. That's the type of Vanessa Barron, Tarim Killam, Bobby Moynihan sketch they would have had back then. It was just so silly. And of course, I cannot resist pointing out that Heidi Gardner, another fantastic role in that one is the, what, 1920s actress, fresh off the bus? Yes, uh, uh, yeah, Donna, uh, yeah, whatever, uh, Idina Menzel's uh, Adele Dazim is who she played. Actually, that, on that note, I want to talk about something that I know you and I had spoken about that sort of circulated, um, made the rounds in terms of the news scene a couple of mm-hmm. weeks ago uh, about this idea of this, this proclamation that SNL is no longer an ensemble-driven comedy. Can you speak a bit more about that? Yeah, this is, you and I have both mentioned this. I'm not speaking out of turn here. We have both mentioned it's very odd the more you watch this era of SNL, especially the last three, four years. And this is kind of a, a recent development. You'll notice the characters don't interact with each other very often anymore. It's really usually a setup for one character to do crazy things and everyone reacts to them. And that's kind of a Mikey Day, the way he writes sketches. My wife always says that. She's like, oh, this is a Mikey Day sketch. She, can, she just doesn't like the, the way they're set up. But yeah, that's the one thing we see in this era. The characters don't interact with each other much. And one of the rare examples we see is the uh, the Trump brothers when they're on Weekend Update. They're doing shtick, they're bouncing off one another, and they're really playing off each other. So that's the one thing that I kind of think this this era of SNL could do a little more with. Instead of just one character is up, goes up there, does a little shtick, and exits stage left, and the next, next character comes on. You'd wish there'd be more ensemble pieces. The, you, know, you want to see these really talented actors bouncing off each other and just playing off each other's energy. And again, like the Q&A sketch, as much as I like it, the film festival, it really is the same thing. Someone comes up, does their bit, leaves. Someone comes up, does their bit, leaves. So yeah, it, you, would you agree with that? That's one thing I think this, this uh, era could really do a little better with. Yeah, and it's something that we're surprisingly sorely missing most of the time is really like the ones where everyone is together and just sort of contributes in their weird way. That's why something like Lobster Diner from last season was so much fun. It's because you have everyone sort of come out and do their little part. Even something like the cold open, the Kavanaugh cold open was, okay, we'll get the camera on this one person, then we move on to the next one. So I, I agree that I think it would be fun to get more people sort of mixed up. I can understand that maybe some of the easier sketches to write are those that have, you know, maybe even four or five people in a group where it's all on one, one person's weird and everyone else sort of reacts to it or the other way around. Uh, but I, yeah, I'm all for, this is a, it's a big cast, but it's a really talented cast. I'm all for throwing people together. That's what made something like do it in my twin bed. So mm-hmm. freaking good is because it had this big cast of people and everyone sort of, sort of had their own little part to do their thing, but they all gelled together into one sort of cohesive unit. Yeah, I agree. And again, I'm not one to really criticize SNL, but there's two things that I think, well, three things I think of this era maybe could do a little better. There's certain performers I just don't think are good in live sketches, and there's no way around it. I'm not going to name their names. You can probably guess who they are. I just think they're fairly weak. And overall, I think it's a good cast, but I think they're better in pre-taped bits and weekend update commentaries than they are in live comedy sketches. The other one is I wish we'd see more interaction between characters and stuff and ensemble sketches. And number three is just a personal pet peeve is that this whole era, the last year, two, three, maybe has just been kind of sloppy, like people missing cues and the camera being on the wrong person when they're supposed to be talking. And I don't know if that's, I'm just starting to watch the East coast feeds. I didn't normally watch them. Maybe it was always cleaned up when I was younger and I always saw the West coast one, but it seems like the technical team is really kind of sloppy this year. So far, you'll see a lot of little mistakes and things like that, where things are just being missed. 
So those are really the three things that I have. Mm. And on that note, I mean, on the other side of that coin, while the first two episodes might not have been the best, there were still, as always with even the worst SNL episodes, nuggets that sort of shone through amongst the rocks while we were panning for gold uh, between the aforementioned Oil Baron sketch. I love the cricket sketch uh, as well from the uh, from the Aquafina episode. I thought it was a really great rug pull. Pete Davidson talking about Kanye. So I feel like overall, the first three episodes of SNL have done a nice sort of, I would say, you know, uh, start off in the in the middle, take a little bit of a dip, and then soar right back up past that uh, equator. And here's hoping that Jonah Hill sort of maintains. I'll hope so. There'll at least be some energy brought there. I feel like the writers have enough confidence in Jonah that they'll provide some fun stuff for him. So I'm excited to see where season 44 is going to take us. The last episode really gave me confidence that the season has legs. Yeah, I agree. I was really thrilled with the last episode. And, and I should point out, the first three episodes of this season far better than the first three episodes of last season oh yeah well i would i, I would say I, I i liked much like the seth myers i feel like episode three the kumail nanjiani episode mm-hmm. uh from last season was was one of my favorites as well but to your point yeah it was a very similar trajectory where the first episode was fine the second episode not so good i'm sure when i finish my big snl uh season ranking by the end of it all it'll probably be near the bottom and then just one big pickup for the third episode yeah and I should point out, two seasons ago, we were at the point where it was Alec Baldwin as Trump with the Grim Reaper as Steve Bannon, which was just stupid. Like, I can't even imagine how that's ever going to hold up in a rerun. No one's going to care about that stupid sketch. So, like, that was two seasons ago. So we've kind of come a long way a little. They've kind of loosened up a little bit and started having fun a little more. So I personally, I mean, I'm always being accused of being an SNL optimist. I'm always going to see the glasses half full. But I would be personally excited if I was an SNL fan just because I think this last episode really brought a breath of fresh air and it was a type of episode we haven't seen in a while. I mean, it was a lot like the John Mulaney one, which I would argue was superior. The Mulaney one was probably better than the Seth Meyers one, but I was expecting nothing from that Seth Meyers episode. That was the one I was least looking forward to because I assumed it would just be a parade of cameos like they tend to do. Oh yeah, you celebrate 2000 era, which I don't even know why they do that. It's so lazy, but it wasn't. I couldn't believe how much more fun it was than I was expecting. And again, Seth comes in there with his mindset as head writer. And I should point out that era of SNL I love so much, he was the head writer. He was the guy, maybe you want to talk about, there was this interview with Taryn Killam where he even points this out, that when Seth Meyers was running the show, there was a certain looseness and funness. And when he came back this week, all of a sudden it was there again. So maybe he was kind of the missing ingredient. Maybe you notice, maybe Seth was there for a week and they noticed, hey, this episode was fun and maybe that'll make a difference in the long run. So here's hoping. A random prediction from me for the weeks to come. With the acquisition of Brooklyn Nine-Nine, speaking of alumni hosting, I feel like absolutely non-zero change we get Andy Samberg hosting again, right? (laughs) I would be so excited. He's been one of my gets for years. I really want to see Andy Samberg because I have long said he is as responsible for the renaissance of snl he is more responsible than probably anyone like snl was really kind of floating along there after 9 11 9 11 they didn't really know what they were doing it was a really weird era for comedy and i really don't think snl was very strong but then andy sandberg shows up and he i think more than anybody should get credit for how much he brought to snl so i would love to see an episode of him in there coming back that would be fantastic yeah i think it's been i think he hosted like the season I don't know, I want to say like 40 or 41 finale, season finale mm-hmm. a few years back. And that's the last time and first time he hosted. So I feel like it, it's perfect NBC synergy to bring him back on. I don't have any other predictions. Uh, my Gaga prediction, uh, I, I don't know I don't know if it's uh, holding water at this point, considering <laughs> that we're nearing November. The movie's been out for a month and we haven't heard anything, maybe by the, the turn of the year. But I, no matter who's hosting, I'm excited to see what's to come next in November for SNL. Well, the, the, the guy who is Creed, I forget his name, uh, uh, Michael B. Jordan. Yeah, Michael B. Jordan. Creed 2 is coming out at Thanksgiving, and I thought he was really good on the show the first time, so I would love to see him back. I am a big fan of that guy. Well, Mario, uh, that'll, we'll, we'll close things up for now in terms of October. Uh, anything else you want to mention about the first three episodes of season 44 before we put it behind us and move on to the next month? Not really. I just hope people liked hearing our voices. Again, we're not the normal SNL after-party guys. You may, uh, I know Mike and I may not have the the most street cred around these parts. We're just new guys. Again, we were, we had a little SNL podcast last year. We stopped doing it. And uh, the guys from SNL after party are like, Hey, would you like to come join our show and do off week updates? And Mike and I were like, you know, Jennifer Aniston and Rachel Dratch, the little English scam standing outside the window saying, you know, a crust of bread, make cure me rickets. 
And we were so excited they brought us in and, and we could join their show. So yeah, we're not the regular guys. I hope you look forward to our insight as well. And again, I we really do prepare for this. It seems like that we're just joking around, but like Mike and I really put a lot of thought in what we want to talk about. And I, I hope we've able to give some good insights and maybe get you to appreciate some things about SNL that you might not have appreciated before. And that being said, Heidi Gardner is amazing. <laughs> always on and on a good note there or a guard note uh, so you can always follow both of us on social media to give us your thoughts if you're on Twitter Mario is at Mario J Lanza I am at a Mike Bloom type you can check out all the stuff that we do each and every week out there in the podcast cosmos whether it's Mario's staff picks or the various podcasts I do about reality TV we always sort of publicize it uh, on social media in terms of SNL after party you'll be hearing from John and Steve next as they recap episode 4 with host Jonah Hill musical guest Maggie Rogers that'll be airing on November 3rd and of course will come out the Tuesday after that and then I guess we're expecting another three or four episodes uh, and then around Thanksgiving end of November is probably when Mario and I will get back together to do a November in review we're already nearing the end of 2018 uh, but I'm excited to see where SNL goes from here so Thank you all for listening. Let us know your thoughts about our thoughts, I suppose, about the season so far. Really excited to see and hear uh, both where the season goes from here and the podcast as well. But that's going to do it for this off-week episode. We'll talk to you guys next month. For now, take care. Bye-bye.